You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. It is such a joy to be here with you all. Um, it is. It has been a full, soul-nourishing weekend um, just to be in your guys' presence. Uh, Maryland is beautiful, y'all. This is my first time to Baltimore. I had no idea you guys had hills. Is <laughs> is beautiful. Uh, you, I, you know, I, I, I follow the Ravens. So I, when I think Baltimore and Maryland, I think like the city. Um, and just to be out in nature and just playing and worshiping and fellowshipping with you all has just been uh, nourishment for my, my soul. So I've told Pastor Dan many times this week and how grateful I am for you guys. Uh, I, have, I have felt so welcomed, so loved by you guys. Um, that's, that's truly special. Thank you for being a church that loves well. Now, today I have to admit, it's a, it's a bittersweet day. It's, it's the Juneteenth weekend and it's also Father's Day, and on the one hand, there's so much to celebrate. Uh, to, today, we celebrate the liberation of black people in our country, uh, and we also celebrate fathers, good, godly men who love their wives and their kids and who lead their families well. But I know many of us are also walking into this day with, with heavy hearts. Uh, many of us, as, as people of color, know the continued experiences of, of inequality in this country. We, we know too well, too personally, the pains of microaggressions and, and, and racial profiling. For some of you, you might be missing your dad today, as, as, as Pastor Dan mentioned. T- today, some of us are walking into this day with having had our fathers taken far too early. Some of you have estranged and, and deeply painful relationships or, or lack thereof with your dads. So wherever you find yourself this morning, please know that God sees you. You're not alone. He is your loving father, your loving daddy, who wants you to bring these burdens to his feet so that he can care for you. And our God is a God of liberation. Amen. And, and, and we can pray today that he will continue to fight for us because we know he's already fighting on our behalf. And, and we can ask him as, as a church to show us, for, for you as Village Church, to show you how to show up in your community to keep fighting for the freedom and dignity of all peoples. Because our, our God is big, y'all. He is sovereign. And nothing is too big for him. So let us lean on him today in this joy and in this sorrow. Now, none of that was part of my sermon. (laughs) So let's actually turn to the topic at hand. I want to speak to you all this morning about what it means to pursue racial solidarity as a local church. Now, just, just to define racial solidarity up front, at its most basic level, Gospel-rooted racial solidarity means showing up and standing up for a person or a group of people who, by all accounts, might feel like you, you have nothing to do with each other. There's no point of commonality. It means racial solidarity, from a biblical perspective, means being not only aware of the pains that are impacting your community, but proactively engaging in these issues as part of how we usher in the kingdom of God. It means raising our voices to the higher-ups, not because it's part of some secular agenda, but because this is how we show love to our neighbors. 
We break cycles of pain and oppression because we know that these cycles breaks God's heart and we want to love our neighbors and our community the way that God sought to create the space of flourishing and shalom as it was in the garden. Now, I, whenever we come to this conversation, it is good to affirm the ways in which uh, we are growing, the ways in which we have progressed as a country. There are some things that our country is doing really well, y'all. It's, it's okay to acknowledge that. There have been bills passed. There have been policies made. Uh, individual hearts are changing and growing. There's so many Christians that I've talked to, uh, say in 2019, that told me, you know what, I, I really don't think race is that big of a deal. And something happened in 2020, y'all, and God worked in the hearts of so many. To, and I now hear those same Christians saying, no, no, I, I, I realize race is actually a big deal. I, I need to care about this. The Bible says something about this. So God is working in people's hearts. And I praise God for that. I think for the majority of us, we have moments where we succeed in pursuing racial solidarity. And I think, just quite honestly, because of human brokenness, there's also times where we just miss the mark. In the United States, you know, in our country, since the summer of 2020 and the murder of George Floyd, uh, many people, many Christians have started reading books on race, praise God for that. Uh, you know, books like Latasha Morrison's Be the Bridge, Jamar Tisby's Color of Compromise, they became bestsellers. That's good. I'm glad. I'm glad those books are on people's bookshelves. We're learning and we're growing. Reading books has helped many people feel more informed about race relations in our country, but the problem that I've seen and perhaps you've seen as well is that we can still kind of fall into these reductive understandings of race. You know, some of these folks who are like, yes, race is an issue, I need to address it, still fall into this sort of black-white racial divide. If I want to care about race, I'm going to care about relations between black people and white people. And of course, that's good. That's incredibly important. On the weekend of Juneteenth, we should care more about black-white relations. Some folks have become better allies and friends of the black community, praise God. But I have also seen for myself as a second-generation Indian-American woman whose own mother immigrated to this country in the 1970s that too often Asian-Americans and Latino-Americans and oftentimes indigenous folk are overlooked in these conversations and overlooked within race conversations within the church. Even worse, sometimes when Asian Americans speak up about uh, anti-Asian racism or a shooting or an attack, there's, there's pushback. They say, no, we address race in these issues. Y'all need to, you know, step down. Y'all are making too big a deal about Asian issues. Y'all are making too big a deal about Latino issues. Y'all are making too big a deal about mixed race folks or indigenous folks. We're doing what we think is best about race relations. Everything else takes a back seat. This, this, 
This crosses lanes not just between majority and minority, but even between minority relations, right? Because in in some way, racism is hitting all of our communities. It feels like we're all drowning. And so we're trying to speak up. We're trying to just get someone to pay attention and to care. And then we see our brother or sister of another ethnicity raising their voice. And we say, hey, it's not your turn. There's not enough attention to go around. We fall into this mentality of scarcity and say, we believe that the people won't give enough space for us both to be at the table together. We think, how can we care about someone else's house burning if our own house is burning too? And that's a problem. So much of the pushback, the competition, The blinders that we have on race today in America for the evangelical church reveals our limits and our understandings of racial, of biblical-centered racial solidarity. We have a limited understanding, y'all, of who our neighbor is. We have a limited and narrow understanding of who is suffering and whose suffering should take precedence. We create these hierarchies. But as as followers of Jesus, we have to move beyond these black-white racial divides in order to pursue racial solidarity in the kingdom of God so that all peoples may flourish. Part of this is we just need to grow our imagination. We have to have a greater understanding of who our family is and how we stand up and show up for our family collectively. This is about not having a favorite family member, right? This is not about playing favoritism. This is about caring for each of our family members equally. And let me tell you all, that's not easy. It is not easy to do this sort of multitasking, but this is our biblical precedent. And I want to take us to Galatians 3, 26 through 29 and unpack a biblical racial solidarity ethic and map out a few practical applications for us today. Does that sound okay? Amen? All right. When, when it comes to the issue of race in the church today, I want to posit to you that the body of Christ is experiencing a familial crisis. You see, instead of embracing each other's burdens as we should, as brothers and sisters, uh, as we're called to do in Galatians 6 verse 2, for example, we treat each other more like that crazy uncle who we stop inviting to family dinners. We treat each other like those crazy family members that we don't want showing up to, to holidays and to anniversaries and to birthday parties. Families are supposed to have each other's back no matter what. We're supposed to look out for each other when no one else does. But that's not what we see happening with brothers and sisters of different ethnicities in the church today. Quite the opposite, in fact. This goes across the board. Many black, brown, and white Christians alike don't know how to show up for each other, to stand up for each other, whether that's in the same town or across, across town or across states or across our nation. We much prefer too often... Not all, but too often, many of us prefer to shame and insult and reject as opposed to embrace and love and protect. You see, our our big F family, our our big C church is in shambles. Now, there's, there's reasons for this. There's 
sociological, cultural, historical reasons for this, we, for why we have a hard time caring for each other's racialized pains. Uh, Barner research has showed that in our post-2020 world, there is a good percentage of Christians who are just unmotivated to address racial pains at all. And part of that is because it feels so overwhelming. You know, we're, we're, we're being told, you need to start learning the history of Asian Americans in this country. You need to learn the history of immigrants in this country, Latinos, Mexicans, Guatemalans. Uh, you need to understand the history of, of Native, Native Americans in, in, in our country. And, and, and sometimes it's like, I don't know where to start. There's just this overwhelming sense that it's too much, and we get paralyzed. And, and, and those, those feelings are what lead to, I don't know where to start, therefore I won't start anywhere. Lack of personal re- relationships also becomes a hindrance to motivation. When we don't have friends uh, in the black community, when we don't have friends in the Asian community, when we don't know any immigrants personally, whether, you know, whether they're Nigerian immigrants or Guatemalan immigrants, we, we tell ourselves, well, I don't really fully know the depth of that experience. And that becomes a justification for sidelining ourselves. Surely somebody else who knows that community will show up and do something. And, and, and to be honest, most of this sort of unhealthy, unproductive engagement with race today around racial solidarity stems just from our inability to see outside of our own life's experiences. I, I, I kid you not, there, there has been too many times where I've shared about either experiences of racism in the Asian American community or experiences that I've had personally and people have told me in response, well, that can't be true. <laughs> You must be making, uh, you must have misinterpreted that because oftentimes non-Asians, if, if it hasn't happened to them, if they haven't experienced what I've experienced, then either one, uh, it, it must not be that big of a deal or even worse, it must not be true. That is a mentality that each of us have to fight against. Fight against that lie that says, if I haven't experienced it personally, I can't be quick to have this knee-jerk reaction to say, no, that doesn't exist at all. So here's, here's the thing. Let's come back to this idea of family, of brothers and sisters. Imagine in your own family, your, your aunt, your uncle, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your mom, your dad, they come to you with this huge pain, with this huge burden. What you shouldn't do is say, I, I really don't care. What you shouldn't do is think, okay, how can we quickly brush this under the rug as fast as we can? What you shouldn't say is, hey, you know, keep that to yourself, man. I've, I've got my own issues. But that's what we do when it comes to issues of race. You're not supposed to just stop talking to your brother or sister when they're in pain or tell them they can't come over or hang out until they've got their business sorted out. Instead, you're supposed to say, come over. Let me cook for you. Have you eaten today? Because for our family, whether it's my own kids or my spouse or my extended family, their pain is my pain. If they're hurting, I put my life on pause so I can live in the trenches with them and figure this out together. We, we show up. We, we offer them our couch. We lend them money if they need to, if they need it. 
And we show up day after day again and again because that's what family does. We don't distance ourselves from our brothers and sisters. We, we draw near. We, we get in the mess and say, we're, we're going to figure this out together. I'm not, I'm not going to leave you stranded. So this is where the text in Galatians becomes so important because if we, as, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, want to grow in our ability of, of gospel-centered racial solidarity, we have to do a, a more intentional work of, of developing deep and familial bonds with brothers and sisters of other ethnicities. We have to, to, to you know, whether we're walking down the street or we're in a conversation with somebody, instead of just saying, oh, that black person or oh, that Asian person, our, our language has to shift to my black brother, my Asian sister, my Latino brother, my Native American sister. We have to see each other as family. And I want to go to Galatians 3, 26 through 29 to show you why, why the biblical precedent for having this sort of perspective and this language. Because this is, in fact, the Apostle Paul's charge to the church in Galatia. Listen to this. Galatians 3, 26 through 29 says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise Now, Paul writes these words to an ethnically divided church. I mean, it's it's, it's crazy. So so often when we come back to scripture, we start digging into the historical context, I'm always so amazed that the problems of the first century church are the same problems that we have today. And you think about it. Think about every letter that the Apostle Paul writes. There are problems in every church, in every city throughout the, 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 the known world at that time where churches have been planted, wherever the gospel has gone forth and churches are organically rising up, there is ethnic division. <laughs> what, a, what a mirror for us in the 21st century today. Which, on, on a side note, that shows y'all that when we are truly living into God's vision and God's heart for multi-ethnic, multicultural churches, there will always be conflict. Do not think that because your church has cultural conflict that that in and of itself is sin. That's part of living life together, pursuing true multicultural community and racial solidarity will always be uncomfortable It will always bring discomfort. There will be tension. And for us as followers of Jesus, it's not about avoiding conflict. It's figuring out how we lean in and stay faithful to one another in the midst of that conflict. Let the words of the epistles be be that charge to you. So the believers in Galatia, they'd been drawing these stark lines in the sand of who was considered a believer and who was not. And there was this this faction of Jewish believers in the Galatian church who insisted that Gentile converts begin physically appearing and acting like their Jewish counterparts, accepting Jewish law, adhering to circumcision if they were to belong to God's people. In other words, they were saying, If you want to be accepted within our church, you need to act like us. You need to dress like us. You need to look like us. And this resulted in nothing but chaos 
and exclusion from these demands, uh, there, was, there was a crisis of family within the Galatian church. And so Paul steps into this messy situation and says, no, no, because Gentile converts have embraced Christ and received the Spirit just like Jewish believers, they are no less heirs of Israel's promises. Now, I, I, I absolutely love this because what Paul creates in this Galatians passage is this sort of utopic picture. It's this ideal in which nothing divides us, not language or ethnicity, not sex or customs, not socioeconomic brackets or, or racialized experiences in the world because we are all one in Christ. Now, Hear me, too often we have misinterpreted Galatians chapter 3. We go to this passage too often to say, look, Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, therefore our cultural identities don't matter. The only thing that matters is our oneness in Christ, as as if this is just a spiritual reality, that our our spiritual identities are all that is important in this life. And of, 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 of course, we don't go to that next phrase, there is neither male nor female. <laughs> we are all one in Christ Jesus. We don't, we don't take that same sort of interpretive analysis and say we should no longer identify as men or women, that we should operate in these sort of sexless bodies. We, we don't do that, yet we try to do those sort of hermeneutical gymnastics with Jew and Gentile. So I want to posit to you that what's happening here, what Paul is saying, is not about trying to erase these identities, erase cultural identities, erase gendered identities, erase even socioeconomic identities. That's not what's happening here. Instead, he is arguing that no matter who you are and what your identity is, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can be family, Every person's voice and story and experience matters and should be retained. You see, Paul's criticism in Galatians 3, 26 through 29 is on the Jews who are not treating their Gentile brothers and sisters fairly the way that brothers and sisters in the Lord should be treated, namely as equals and as one. Now, to to press into this a little bit more, oneness should not be equated to sameness. Right? Sameness is not the point. This, by the way, this is why we oftentimes have multi-ethnic churches that are monocultural. You can claim to be a church that represents 70 countries from around the world, and yet somehow there is still this majority white cultural milieu in your church and in your songs and in your preaching and in your discipleship. Because too often we say, great, now we have all the people of the world in our pews, and now we can all just be united and therefore be the same. But this is not about erasing ethnic identities or racialized experiences. It's about learning how to enjoy. Enjoy is not just about putting up with each other. This is about learning to enjoy one another in deep fellowship. People who are different from us. My, 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 my friend uh, and, and, and uh, professor at Moody Bible Institute, Dr. Eric Redman, he gave a lecture on Romans 16 last year uh, for the 2021 conference for pastor theologians. What I what I loved about his, his lecture is that he argued that scripture shows us that our personhood with all of our positive 
social identifiers should be embraced for the glory of God. It's, it's not about being colorblind. It's about saying, I see you. I see all of you, the color of your skin, the, the joys of your culture, your racialized experiences of pain. I praise God for you because you're my brother or my sister. And because I see you fully, I'm going to live life together with you. We see each other as unique individuals. We see each other's specific pains because quite honestly, my pains as a second generation Indian American woman is going to be different from a third generation Korean American who perhaps grew up in LA. I grew up in Minnesota. Our experiences are so vastly different. The same is true for the black community. You may, you may have an African-American brother who, who can trace their family's roots for, for centuries in this country, but you might have another brother who's a first-generation Jamaican. Uh, you might have another brother who's a first-generation Nigerian. We are not a monolith. The, quote, white community is not a monolith. You have German roots or Swedish roots or Dutch roots. We are each unique individuals, and we have unique points of joy and unique points of pain. And as family members, we have to see that. And that requires relationship. It requires eating together. It requires saying, tell me your story. What are your ethnic roots? How, how, tell me about your family. We don't treat each other the same. It means understanding that I am different from you and the world treats us differently, but in spite of all that, we will go against the status quo and declare that our lives are interconnected. We declare that in Christ our joys and pains and lives all intersect and that what impacts one of us impacts all of us. That's why, that's why the church should be such a countercultural space. Because the world says we care for ourselves, we care for our own. But the church says, no, we care for all peoples, because every person is made in the image of God. Now, again, we cannot interpret Galatians 3 26 through 29 in a purely spiritual lens. Dr. Craig. Keener, who has a fantastic commentary on on the book of Galatians, if you're looking for one, start there. He says this, one can hardly say that Galatians 3 verse 28 addresses only salvation, as if salvation itself lacks transformative implications for relationships. One cannot fully isolate 328 from relevance to social conflict, since social conflict informs the entire letter (laughs) to the Galatian church. The already side of the already not yet tensions of the kingdom impacts social relationships between Jews and Gentiles and slave and free, men and women, including marriage. In other words, the language of us being children of God should not simplistically be interpreted as recipients of spiritual blessings in Christ through faith, but rather as this complex declaration of solidarity in all Things. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. If people ask you, you know, what does the Bible actually say about racial solidarity? You know, is that actually a biblical topic? Take them to Galatians 3, 26 through 29. This is the foundation for a solidarity ethic in all things, including racial solidarity in the church. Because instead of conforming to the pattern of the world that treats 
draws this line between us and them, the church takes a different posture. There should be no us. There should be no them. It's only we. Ethnicity, class, gender. These are things that no longer isolate people from each other. And not just our, our cultural expressions, but our racialized experiences of pain. These should be treated equally. So, so check this out. A man should care about the pains and struggles that a woman has. An African-American should care about the pains and struggles that a Latino has. An Anglo-American should care about the pains and struggles that an Asian-American has, and so on. When we fully live into the racial solidarity ethic of Galatians 3, we will intentionally and verbally declare that, for example, the black Christians and Latino Christians on the other side of Baltimore are our brothers and sisters. We will intentionally and verbally declare that the Asian and indigenous Christians, whether they're on the north side or the south side or the east side, I have no understanding of the geography of Baltimore, but wherever they are, they are our brothers and our sisters. We may not be physically proximate to each other. They, they might not be our next door neighbor. But as a family under the banner of Christ, we have an obligation of moral proximity to each other to physically and spiritually care for each other because when you're my brother or when you're my sister, I will show up and stand up with you when you're hurting. So here's four practical ways that we as a local church can pursue racial solidarity in our communities. The first is just to acknowledge racial pain and racial tragedies regularly and often, whether it's for you guys as congregants, as individuals, whether it's for the, the, the leaders of this church addressing it from the pulpit. So I'm going to start there. The leadership of a church sets the tone for how racial pains and tragedies are addressed in communal life. Too often, uh, I, I, I talk to folks, uh, and I, I love asking them the question, how often does your pastor speak out against uh, racism or injustice from the pulpit? And I always marvel when they say, oh, he doesn't talk about that because, you know, he, he preaches exegetically from the text. <laughs> As if to say in their minds that the Bible has nothing to say about these issues. What, a, what an anemic understanding of God's heart for all peoples and for racial reconciliation and racial unity within the body. You see, whether it's a, a racist act, a, a shooting, a tragedy, a, a, a moment of police brutality or more, these are moments of spiritual formation for us as a church, including for y'all as parents with your children and having these conversations in the home. We, we have seen the ways that in which silence from the pulpit, silence from church communities, silence from Christian homes has had negative repercussions on people's faith. I mean, quite simply, y'all, racism is sin. If you're struggling to have conversations with your kids about this in your home, start there. You might not be able to explain all of the systemic underpinnings that are happening uh, when there's a shooting, that's okay. God didn't call us to all be scholars in every single issue of race in our country, but when there's, when there's a shooting, 
when, when, when Uvalde happened, which was just an hour from our town, and I have a seven-year-old son, and I didn't necessarily want to show him what was happening on the news, but I sat him down and I told him, look, some kids were killed today in a school, and that's sin. God, God's heart is broken because innocent people were killed. And it doesn't matter what the situation is, whether it's an instance of a black man being killed at the hands of white police police officers, whether it's an instance of a shooter walking into a spa and killing Asian women, it doesn't matter what the situation is, we can always confidently declare that God's heart is broken because of the death of his children and that what that shooter or what that person did was sin. We can tell our children that God loves all people and any sort of attack against any human being is sin. Start there. If you are a leader, if you are leading an organization or a nonprofit, communicate that with your staff. Name the sins of racism, call them out from the pulpit, speak it over your children at mealtimes because the watching, the world is watching The world is listening. They're waiting to see if we show up as an extension of our love for our community. In the aftermath of a shooting or death, there can be so much comfort in the leadership of a church telling brothers and sisters of color, I am sorry for what happened. I'm grieving with you. As fellow congregants, we can do that to each other through a text, through pulling each other aside, give each other a hug, pray for them. Say, hey, can I, can I get you some food today? Or can I, can I give you a, a, a coffee gift card? In fact, and, and, and I want you to hear this so that you can have this sort of cultural agility as a church body because when there have been times at our church in Austin after a local or national tragedy that we've just scrapped the sermon, y'all. We've just scrapped the liturgy for that Sunday and crafted a message that's specifically tailored to the issue at hand, because we live in a racially broken world, we have to have the cultural and racial agility to be able to say, well, we had plans, (laughs) but those plans are now on hold because we've got to mourn, we've got to lament, and it's okay. It's okay to scrap the service and say, we're just going to pray. We're going to go to God's word and pray. Yes, we value liturgy. Yes, we value the programs. Yes, we value the, the, the nursery and the kids' Sunday school downstairs. But when, our, when tragedy has ripped through our community, the way that we show God's heart for all people is putting life on pause and lamenting. Figure out what that looks like in your own life, in your church life, as the leadership of this church. Now, part of how we do this individually and collectively is by staying informed for what's happening in other communities. Too often after an attack on the Asian community, and I say something, whether in person or online, I have so many uh, well-meaning Christians, brothers and sisters that I love that, that do reach out and I'm grateful for, and they say, I'm so sorry. But it's the next part that intrigues me. I'm so sorry. I had no idea that happened. 
I remember after the El Paso shooting at a Walmart a few years ago in, in Texas, there was a lot of predominantly white churches in Austin. That was on a Saturday. The next day was Sunday. A lot of predominantly white churches said nothing about the shooting, even though they had Latino congregants. And, and when Latino congregants came up to them and said, hey, why didn't you say anything? It was just this like, we had no idea. We had no idea that went down. And what that shows us is that we are watching different news outlets, that we're following different thought leaders, that we're, we don't have a pulse into what's happening in each other's communities. But here's the thing, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a pastor, if you are a parent committed to racial solidarity, you need to know what's happening in your town. You need to know what's happening in Hamden and the surrounding neighborhoods. You need to be following media outlets that focus on black realities, Asian realities, Latino realities, so that when something goes down, you're part of the first to know and respond. That's racial solidarity in motion. Now, take this one step further. If you have, if, if, for, for, for some of y'all that feel willing and comfortable, I think there's so much power in the church being able to center stories, center testimonies, when there is a racial tragedy to make space for, for folks from that community to come up front to either pray or share their perspective on, on what's happening, you might not want to, and that's okay. But the visibility of diverse stories in our community, in our church, is so incredibly important for us to actually develop relationships and to empathize on a one-to-one -one level. For example, you know, and, and again, hear me, I, I don't want this to, to fall into the cracks of tokenism. These are parts of whole life rhythms. There are mile markers throughout our calendar, like Black History Month, where we can invite black congregants up to share what it means for them to be a black American in our country. During May API Heritage Month, we can invite Asian Americans to come and share stories of what it means for them to be Asian American and so on. This goes a long way. Praying and, and reading scripture in, in, in a language of the affected community and, and, uh, and so on. So church, let us be people that do our research. Let us be people that know what's happening, that has a pulse on what's happening in our community. Because Proximity leads to awareness. Awareness leads to action. You cannot get to the question, what can I do for my community if you don't even know what's happening in your community? Amen? So let us be people who are informed. People who are connected. And maybe that means rethinking your morning rhythms or your evening rhythms. How can you allot, even if it's just five minutes or 10 minutes, Checking in with different news outlets, different media outlets, perhaps different thought leaders, and kind of checking out what's going on in different communities today, in my city, across the country. And respond in lament and prayer, exhortation. We live in a world of relentless violence and evil, and we need to address these evils head on again and again. 
Now, second, build lifelong relationships across cultures. I mean, think of even, I, I look out into this congregation and there's just this beautiful diversity that is, that is here in these rows and in these pews. How often do we take time out of our rhythms and our schedules to, 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 to get out of that rat race of busyness and to reach out to a fellow congregant and say, hey, can, can we go out for tea? Can we go out for coffee? Can I just take you out? Can we get to know each other? Again, asking those questions. What's your story? What are your ethnic roots? Tell me about your family. How do you enjoy living here in this community? Again, it does no good for us to have a sort of one-and-done approach to diversity or racial solidarity. Oh, I, I, I went to that march once. <laughs> that does nothing for life rhythms of solidarity in a community. True, effective change requires that we go deep. True racial solidarity, biblically rooted racial solidarity, happens when we live life together. So let me ask you a question. How often do you eat? How often do you break bread together as a church? How often do you break bread with people in the community? How often are you walking the streets and getting to know people and trusting in God's grace and courage in the moment to say, hey, can I take you out and, 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 and have a meal together? I, I kid you not, so many of the people that we have made friends with in our community in Austin is because my husband and I and our church, we just walk the streets, y'all. We walk with intention. We walk with mission. We pray that we're walking like Jesus and the Apostle Paul to, to position ourselves to meet the people that God has us to meet so that we can get to know them, so that we can pray together. I think there's something beautiful about the urban context, and I think something, you know, oftentimes when we talk about disadvantaged black and brown communities, we're always talking about the struggles, the difficulties, but there is real beauty and real power in these contexts. And one of them is that the people of these communities, they, they have a heart for prayer. They have a desire to pray. They, they have a receptivity to being prayed over, even if they're unchurched, even if they're not believers. So often we, we meet somebody on, on the street and say, hey, how can, you, how can we pray for you? And they tell us, we, I, I, I need prayer for, for groceries. I need prayer for protection. I've got a gang down the street that, that keeps you know, shooting up our neighborhood. And all of a sudden, we're praying on the sidewalk with a neighbor and then getting a pulse on their true physical needs. And we begin to care for them holistically. So, hey, you want to come over to our house? Hey, <laughs> my birthday's next week. You want to come to our birthday party? Man, we've done that way too often. <laughs> and those people are now some of our closest friends. But it requires getting out of our regular rhythms and walking the streets of our community with the intent to find brothers and sisters to live life with. May we be people on mission, not just waiting for people of other ethnicities to come to us, not just saying, well, if I'm doing my thing and I'm at the grocery store and a black person looks at me, I'll say hi and then pat myself on the back saying, well, I was nice to a person of another culture. <laughs> no, we go to people. We, we search people out. We get out of our 
monocultural spaces are monocultural bubbles and say, I want to be your friend. I want to love you. You are my brother. You are my sister. We need to raise that bar. Third, give financially. The plain fact of the matter is that if you want your commitment as individual Christians and as a church to racial solidarity to become deeply rooted, your finances need to reflect this commitment as well. Asian American pastor DJ Chung, he wrote in an article, One Thing We Lack, for an idea to become reality, a project to be completed, or an organization to be sustainable, it takes resources, specifically financial resources. And, and, and we would do well to make a more explicit and tighter connection between money and our efforts in, in both multiculturalism and racial solidarity. In other words, if we say we are committed to racial solidarity, we need to put our money where our mouth is. It does no good to be a social justice warrior on Instagram. It does no good to just be posting about this interesting thought and this interesting quote every once in a while. Our love and solidarity should be costly. If, if this sort of solidarity costs us nothing, then we have to question how deep are our efforts, how deep is our love. You want to show that you are, you are all in? Consider how you're, you're sharing your resources. Consider how generous you are with your time, with your house, with your possessions, with your money. Again, a quote from Pastor DJ. Until we are also generous with our money, collectively we, we will remain stalled in our generation's response to God's call for making a difference in the world, or as Steve Jobs would have said, a dent in the universe. Are we committed to making a dent in our community? And if so, we have to be raising our voice, we have to be building relationships, and we have to be willing to be generous in all that we have. One of the marks of a church that values racial solidarity is open purse strings and an overflowing generosity to the people of our community. This is, very, this is very Indian, but my mom grew up and sharing stories with me about herself growing up where if, if somebody came to their home and they didn't have a shirt on their back or they didn't have a coat, her dad or somebody would take the shirt off their back and give it to them. And I remember growing up, uh, you know, somebody complimenting my mom's earrings, you know, earrings that she had gotten from India, which, you know, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, those, those were hard to come by. But if somebody was like, I, I love your earrings, I've never seen any like that, my mom, on more occasion than one, would take those beautiful earrings and say, here, I want to give them to you. Do we have that kind of generosity to the people that we have the privilege of interacting with on a day-to-day basis? Now, it's not wrong, per se, for a church to make a lot of money. We're a small church plant. We have no idea what what that reality is. But how much of the money that you have as a church and that you have as an individual or as a family is, is given to the poor black and brown folks in your community, to even other churches of color doing good work on the ground to advance racial unity and healing and justice. You see, we have to 
break any sort of savior mindset of coming into a community and recreating the wheel as if people on the ground aren't already doing the good work. There are leaders in this community, Christian and non-Christian, that are doing good work in your community. Find those people and say, hey, how can I serve? How can I help? How can I give to your cause? Because as, as a local church, we don't have to always be in the driver's seat. We shouldn't be in the driver's seat all the time. How can we support minority-led entities and endeavors? Is, is there a history of uh, or existing support to minority-led entities in your church? And how can you better explore partner initiatives, lay initiatives with folks in your community? And to paraphrase the, the preacher John Wesley, as a church, earn all that you can so that you can give all that you can. Talk with your financial theme, team. Think through how much of your church funds is dedicated for compassion or community needs. If, if a homeless black or brown man came through this door, what is the pulse of this church? Would there be fear? Would there be panic? Or would somebody be quick to jump up and say, hey, can I get you some coffee? Hey, are you hungry? If, if their clothes smell, would, would, would one of you all say, hey, can I take you out after church and buy you a shirt? Or better yet, here, <laughs> take my shirt. That's what a church committed to racial solidarity and love for all people. That's the posture of the heart that we have. Finally, I want to say a word about engaging in marches and walks and bike rides and protests because perhaps you were like me. I grew up in a, in, a, in a very conservative Baptist church where all of that was on the do not touch list. All of that was on the avoid <laughs> forever list. <laughs> but hear me, there are times when the church needs to engage in racial solidarity with a loud voice. I hope community church we've stood outside the governor's mansion in Austin to protest the conviction of, of a black man named Rodney Reed on death row. Our church has joined fellow black churches in Texas in front of the Capitol to protest a bill that would deny voting access to black and brown folks in East Austin. We co-organized a march in partnership with local uh, nonprofits in East Austin after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Mike Ramos just to just to march in silence. Some of us had, had signs about how, how, how God loves all people and, and how we believe in the dignity and lives of all people. No, nothing, nothing insulting, nothing profane. Just wanting to communicate our love. Most of us just silently prayed as we walked, but it was a powerful moment in our community. So many folks were sitting on their front porches as people do in urban contexts, and, and, and in having this silent march, we showed first and foremost to our local black and brown brothers and sisters that the local church was standing with them, that we saw the pain of our community and we were there in the trenches with them. This, you see, this is what gospel-centered marches and bike rides and protests should accomplish. They should be our declarations of racial solidarity done well they can raise awareness to to what's happening uh, for those who don't yet know about the issue and they can be moments of our witness of the love of jesus christ and we don't have to be the one organizing them 
We should be open to joining other churches, other organizations, marches, even secular orgs, because racial solidarity, and hear me, this might be a hurdle or obstacle that you need to begin to ask the Lord Jesus to break down for you. Racial solidarity means holding on to a big tent when it comes to civic engagement and showing up even when there are theological differences, even when there are um, other views. How can we say we're showing up because of our love of Jesus and we don't have to have our faith feel threatened? So ask yourself, what what organizations regularly engage in activism in your city? I can't answer that. You guys might know or might need to do the research of what's happening on the ground in Baltimore and how can you as a church, how can you as individual Christian families join this work? How can you show up in love and kindness week in and week out, month in and month out to show your community that the church is here and that you care? I'll tell you from firsthand experience that just encouraging folks to go but not going yourself usually accomplishes nothing. (laughs) How often have perhaps you as a parent told your kid to do something, but unless you were modeling it, they were like, I'm not doing that. Same is true for the leadership of a church. Something that we've had to learn in our own church is that if we want our people engaging in a march, or we want our people showing up to talk to the governor or to call our representatives, if we're not doing it first, if we are not modeling it, how can we expect other people to do the same? Model this as an invitation for the people around you. Protesting in humble, nonviolent forms positions the church to have a credible witness to the watching world that we believe in the dignity of all peoples and we are willing to suffer the cost of public protest, whatever that might be. Because to express any or all of these forms of racial solidarity will require us as a local church to do things that puts our own comfort at risk, that's going to put us out of our comfort zone. Racial solidarity is messy. It comes at a cost Perhaps that moment where you're thinking about engaging in something, but you're like, oh, I know I'm going to make that person mad. Or, oh, I'm going to get a text message from that person. Or, oh, that that person might not want to hang out with us anymore. Instead of quickly retreating and saying, well, I I don't want to rock the boat here. Consider how you can prayerfully still move forward perhaps suffering that cost and asking for the Spirit to guide you in love-filled conversations with that friend or with that parent or with that donor to say, hey, this is worth it. God's calling me to this, and I want to have a conversation with you about it. We have to recognize there is no hope, no hope for cross-cultural relationships in the church, for true multicultural fellowship and unity if racial pains are never addressed. Dividing people into us versus them within the church is a problem as old as humanity itself. In every age, in every country, the people of God have found ways to create visions for who is worthy of attention and who is not. Church, may that not be true in village church. If we want to have any hopes of pursuing racial solidarity as the body of Christ, Do not lose sight of who your brothers and sisters are. 
So may we hold on to a robust understanding of the family of God so that we can fully articulate and live out into a gospel-rooted racial solidarity. And in the midst of much confusion and frustration around race in the church today, let us recapture this beautiful biblical vision of family so that we can cling to scripture and make space for each other's stories and pains. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have made us your family. Thank you that you call us your children and that you model to us fatherly love, fatherly faithfulness, that in the Trinity we we have all the perfect model we need for what it means to care for one another as family members, change our language, whatever is on the tip of our tongues when it comes to race, so that what first comes out is always my brother and my sister, my family. Change the posture of our heart and and our perspectives to have a desire to show up and to stand up for our brothers and and sisters, to wade into the mess, even knowing how costly it is, and that we do this as an extension of our love for all peoples, in modeling your heart for all peoples, as part of how we build the kingdom of God in our communities. May we show love in our words and in our relationships and how we give and in, in, in the hows and wheres of, of showing up in our city in the, in, in the midst of, of, of much tragedy and brokenness. So Lord, equip and empower your church. Equip and empower Village Church. We pray this in your name. Amen.